Listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Nice. I try to come up with a new melody every week. I don't know. It just, it's just, I don't know. It stems from how awkward I am. I just, I feel the need to, to steed. Feel the need to steed. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I don't know. I'm just weird. I'm just really, really weird. Okay. So if you're new here, hi, hello, and welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. We're definitely happy to have you. And if you like what you hear from us, we would greatly appreciate if you left us a good review or a good rating from wherever you're listening. Only if you think we deserve it, of course. We just don't want you throwing out stars or anything like that. (laughs) We just don't want, you know, if you feel like we deserve it, then it's just and you can totally leave us a good review or a good rating. (laughs) I was about to ask if this had turned into Mario Kart somehow. Throwing out stars. Oh, no. (laughs) One more announcement that I would like to make just before we dive into everything. I would just like to give all of our listeners a really big thank you. Thank you. A really big thank you because we've been seeing the influx of messages, comments, emails, all of the Spotify responses that you guys are leaving for us. We've been seeing everything. It makes us super happy. So I just wanted to give a big thank you if you're listening and if you tune in with us every week and you interact with us and you're one of the people commenting or just whatever it may be. We just wanted to give our thanks for that because we really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And we love you. And we will always love you. But only if you consent to it. Because consent is important. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Okay, okay. So getting into everything, I don't want to waste any more time because today's going to be a lot. We have a lot to get through. Um, Okay. And it's absolutely fucking horrific. Researching for this case honestly left like a permanent wound on my soul. Not nice. I was not prepared in any way for how truly twisted and dark and just evil this case is. And what if I told you that it involves vampires? Oh, vampires. Vampires, absolutely, yeah. Have have we transported to Forks, Washington? (laughs) No, we have not. Not Forks. (laughs) Not Forks. We are not in Forks, but uh, today we're going to be talking about vampires, or at the very least, people or a specific person who strongly believed that he was a vampire. And it's just, you know, it's really twisted. It's not going to be good. But today I'm going to be telling you guys about a man named Marcus Wesson, or as he's infamously named, the Vampire King of Fresno. Oh, yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty awful. Um this case was a request from one of our lovely listeners. Her name is Casey. She reached out to us a couple of weeks ago and she suggested that I look into this case. So Casey, if you're listening to this. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Thank you so very much for suggesting a case and thank you for all of the kindness and support that you've given the show 
It is greatly appreciated, and I hope you enjoy the coverage today. So, Marcus Wesson, if you aren't familiar with this story, it's fucking crazy. This case is more than disturbing, more than tragic. Like, if I'm being real, it tore my nerves to pieces. Like, it straight up did. So, Marcus Wesson is referred to as one of the most evil and deranged mass murderers in the history of California, if not the United States as a whole. And as I said a hot second ago, he was named the Vampire King of Fresno. He got his name due to his extreme delusional beliefs, one of them being that he was a vampire. But not only did Marcus believe that he was a vampire, he believed his family were all vampires. Uh, He believed that Jesus Christ was a vampire. And he also believed that he was Jesus Christ, but like vampiric Jesus Christ, so to say. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Right. (laughs) So Marcus, he controlled his family with horrific forms of abuse, including incestual rape, as well as physical violence and other just horrible things. He impregnated his daughters and nieces under the reasoning that he was commanded by God to bear as many children as possible. Marcus also pushed this whole biblical vampire delusion onto his family, basically organizing a family cult. And nine people end up dead as a result. Seven, Yeah, seven of the nine victims were under the age of nine years old, the youngest victim being only one year old. What? Yes. And all of the victims were, of course, family members of Marcus. They were his children and grandchildren slash other various family members because, you know, incest, unfortunately, plays a big part in this. But that's beside the point. Yeah. All of these victims, except for one, were children. So it's. uh, (sighs) That aggravates me. It's really, really bad. So I don't think I have to describe anymore. I've made it pretty clear that this is going to be a particularly rough episode, you guys. There are going to be some heavy mentions and descriptions of sexual assault, incest, and just all kinds of horrible things happening to predominantly children. So Mm. I'm just warning you now, before we get into everything, if you think this one may be too much for you, then by all means, feel free to turn this off and listen to something a little more lighthearted. And don't worry, baby, we won't be mad at you. No, we ain't gonna be mad at you. But I'm also letting you know that, like, if you want to turn back now, now is the point. (laughs) Marcus Wesson was born to his parents, Benjamin and Carrie Wesson, on August 22nd, 1946, in Kansas. As to which part of Kansas, I actually don't know. (laughs) Everything that I could find just said he was born in Kansas. So unfortunately, I cannot give you a city, but we know he was born in Kansas. Marcus had three siblings and he was the oldest, and they would all be raised for the first years of their life in Kansas. So something to know about Marcus's family is that they were all hyper-religious people. Carrie Wesson worked as a nurse, and Benjamin Wesson was a retired World War II veteran. Marcus was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which, if you've listened to my coverage on Rosterio and the Ant Hill Kids cult— That's why I just got real quiet. (laughs) Yeah, you'd remember that the Seventh-day Adventist comes up in that story as well. But for those of you that don't know what the Seventh-day Adventist Church is, well, let me tell you. 
The Seventh-day Adventist Church is an Adventist Protestant denomination of Christianity. The beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventists revolve around the observance of Saturday as a Sabbath due to it being the seventh day of the week in the Christian and Hebrew calendars. They also have a strong belief of virgin birth and the inevitable second coming of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse, basically. Mm. So this is the religion that Marcus was brought up in. Uh, This belief system was forced onto him and his siblings from day one. And I can imagine there was a great deal of trauma sustained by Marcus and his siblings. And you learn, too, that the household was not only super, super religious, like extremist religious, Mm -hmm. but it was also heavily abusive, like heavily. So Marcus's father, Benjamin, he was a violent alcoholic, and he would repeatedly and brutally beat all of his children, including Marcus. And Benjamin also sexually assaulted and abused all of his children on a regular basis as well. I even read that Benjamin evidently had a long-term sexual and romantic relationship with one of his nephews. Okay. And when Marcus was very young, like extremely young, just a couple of years old, Benjamin actually left the family to pursue a relationship with his nephew. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm telling you, like, right out the gate, it's bad. Like, all of this is just bad. So, you know, it's pretty fucked up. This guy had a history of beating and intermingling sexually with his children and other family members. He was he was a fucking monster. And he just up and left his family high and dry for his nephew again. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, what the fuck? Carrie, who is the mother, she was also horribly abusive to the children. She was described as being more than a bit extremist about her beliefs, and she used this Seventh-day Adventist religion as an excuse to dish out brutal beatings as well. Oh, man. It was noted that Carrie used to hold prayer sessions and Bible studies in the home daily, forcing all of the children to attend. And these sessions and studies, they could last for hours and hours and hours on end. Again, daily. Like, this woman did this shit every day. And if Marcus or any of the other children in the home disrupted these prayer sessions or just whatever was going on, then they would be punished via being beaten brutally with wound-up electrical cords. I want to fight this bitch. I mean, it's bad. Just like right out the gate on all sides. It's just not good. And the tone of this episode will not get better from here. Okay, everybody, strap in. So with what I've covered so far, this was daily life for Marcus and his siblings. They endured horrible treatment from both of their parents. And I just, it just hurts my soul to think about, you know, given by the time we get to the end of this, you won't feel so sorry for Marcus. Um, But as of now, he's a child at this point in the story. He hasn't yet went on to do the horrific things that he's going to do. So I kind of ask everybody to take a little perspective here and just humanize him a bit because no child should ever have to go through something like this ever. And you will see later on that all of this had a horrible, long-lasting impact on Marcus and his psyche. Like, clearly. He goes on to recycle the horrific abuse to his own family and his own children. And it's just, it's, it's really sad. That generational curse and recycling of inherited abuse is just very real, and it's very clear in the story. Yeah. So as a young child, Marcus was described as being very quiet and withdrawn. As he grew up into his adolescence, 
Marcus developed a hobby of pretending to be a preacher. That became his favorite thing to do. That is not on my list of things to do. I'm telling you, and he was really young when he started this. He started pretending to preach sermons. And he would be so serious about it that he would have his sisters take part in the sermons too. He would basically have his sisters act as a choir and they would sing hymns while Marcus preached about turning his congregation against evil. And he's a child. Oh my God. Like, and I guess there are some people out there that would believe this was a great thing for him to be doing, but honestly, I don't see it that way. I believe 100% that maybe this behavior stemmed from the religious or spiritual trauma he endured at the hands of his parents. Well, I mean, it's religious extremists, either way that you look at it. I mean, it's, it's just insane. Children should just be children, and I don't think that includes preaching to people about how they need to turn away from evil and follow God. So some of you may disagree with me, and that's completely fine, but I just wanted to make the point to say that I think this was trauma-related. And as we get further into this story, you'll see exactly what I mean by my statement. Clearly, this shit stuck with him, and it fucked him up. Yeah, and, and it, I, I do want to jump in and say this is not religious bashing. This is not No, no, Christian definitely bashing, not. I'm but not, this is, like, this is terrible. I'm not trying to slander anyone's beliefs, not at all, but I just truly believe this was trauma-related. And when yeah. you get later in the story and you see how this stuck with him and how he recycles it, it is, I mean, it's really hard not to look at it that yeah. way. You know what I'm saying? So continuing on. Marcus also had a love for trains, and he would often play with model trains growing up. As he did this quote-unquote preaching, Marcus did discover that he was pretty good at it. And this is the first of many kind of scary notes to make about Marcus. He realized at a pretty young age that through his preaching, he seemed to have an ability to sway others. Other people wanted to listen to him. And mm -hmm. again, these traits... They play a very scary part in right. this story as we get further along. I promise I'm only laughing out of anxiety, but uh, I'm just going to leave that where it is for now. And something else to throw in to just fuck you up a bit with this whole family dynamic. Remember how I said that Marcus's father, Benjamin, left the family to go be with his nephew? Okay, I'll take two fuck me up fams. Drop it on me. He stayed in that relationship for nearly 10 years. He left his family for 10 years only to leave said nephew and return to his family, resuming his position as if nothing happened. What? He just popped back up and was like, you know, hey, everybody, what the fuck did I miss? I came back with the milk. <laughs> it's <laughs> you know? so bad. It is so bad. And I seriously could not imagine at all how Marcus or his siblings felt like your right. dad leaves for 10 years and then all of a sudden comes back and everything's supposed to be okay. And yeah, like like nothing happened. Like I seriously cannot imagine the damage that was done. I mean, it's a very sad situation. It would be in the early 1960s that Marcus and his family relocated from Kansas to California. Marcus was a teenager at this point in the story. And after the family moved, the children all, of course, had to switch schools and everything. Mm-hmm. Marcus started attending the Friedmont Junior High School. And this is, unfortunately, another pretty sad part in Marcus's life because he was subject to some pretty intense bullying at the hands of his classmates. Marcus was forced by his parents to wear a suit and tie every day to school. Mm -hmm. 
So the other kids, of course, picked on him and singled him out because of this. You know, everyone else is dressed casually, and Marcus is like the only kid wearing formal attire. So, like, this didn't go well. The kids at school really gave him a hard time. And it's sad because he had no choice in that. His parents forced him to to basically wear a a tux every day. And I just think that's sad. Like, it's another form of control that his parents displayed over him. And I just, it's sad. And just like bullying does to anybody, it had a horrible effect on Marcus. And it was noted that even though Marcus got picked on constantly, he never once fought back or defended himself in any real way. He just took the treatment of others. And I've said it a hundred times, but my God, it's sad. Like he had no support group, no one to comfort him. He had not one force in his life that cared about his well-being and his happiness. Not one. And you know, excuse my little tangent here, but... With what we cover in a lot of the cases we talk about, you see an overlying societal issue. You see a system that is completely and entirely designed to work against us and to hurt us. You see this same cookie-cutter pattern of abuse that eventually transforms into tragedy. The abuse is just recycled from one generation to the next, and I can't help but think about that. You know, I truly believe that had Marcus had someone that truly cared for him— And he had someone that didn't horribly abuse him. And if he had someone he could talk to, I believe this story would have went in an entirely different direction and we wouldn't be here talking about it today. He is seeing that literally everywhere he goes and every time he tries to put himself out into the world, that there is violence. There's violence in his home life. There's violence at school. There's, you know, like every aspect of his life is filled with violence. Right. Like, so I completely agree with that. And it's just, it is really heartbreaking that you see that so much. Like, I can't even tell you how many episodes that we've covered where it starts out just like this, Mm -hmm. just like this. So it's like, I don't know, in my opinion, I'll get off the tangent and continue the story. I just think it does point to an overlying societal issue. I really, truly think it does. But that's another rabbit hole, another tinfoil hat per se conversation for another time. Continuing on with Marcus's story, when it came time for him to graduate high school, he found out that he didn't have enough credits to graduate, but his school still allowed him to participate in his graduation ceremony. He was able to walk with everyone and do all of that. He just didn't get his diploma. Again, system bullshit. I'm sorry. Uh, I know we're off that tangent, no, but again, but it pops systematic up everywhere. bullshit. It pops up everywhere, unfortunately. Shortly after his high school graduation... In the year 1966, Marcus would go on to join the Army. He was training to be a medical corpsman. He trained for about 10 weeks out in Houston, Texas, and then after that he worked as an ambulance driver for a short period of time in Europe. Oh, wow. Yeah, but none of this would last incredibly long, because just two years later in 1968, Marcus was honorably discharged. So in that same year of 1968, Marcus decided to move out to San Jose, California. And this is where Marcus would meet a woman named Rosemary. Now, Rosemary was recently divorced from her husband. She was 13 years older than Marcus, and she had eight children from that marriage. Oh, wow. So when Marcus and Rosemary met, they hit it off immediately. The two started seeing each other more and more. They had a real connection happening. So very soon into this blossoming relationship, Rosemary invited Marcus to come live with her and her kids. This was later in 1968 when they moved in together. And I guess for a while, 
things went smoothly and everyone seemed happy. Marcus spent a lot of time with Rosemary's children. Neighbors of Marcus and Rosemary even reported that they remembered Marcus playing with the kids quite often. You know, from the outside, everyone thought this was a happy and average household. Mm -hmm. In 1971, Rosemary would give birth to Marcus's first child, a boy named Adair. And this is where the story starts gradually uh, going downhill, like worse than it already was going downhill, <laughs> very much so. So buckle in, everybody. The rest of this episode is going to be nothing short of absolutely fucking awful. And ladies and gentlemen, if you look above your head in the overhead cabin, you will find flotation devices for your asshole. <laughs> 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 oh my god stop it <laughs> ah. shortly after the birth of Adair Marcus started showing a weird interest in one of Rosemary's daughters her name was Elizabeth and she was only 8 years old at this time and before she reached the age of 12 Marcus had started molesting her Mm-mm-mm. yeah it's it's bad it's not gonna get any better but get this shit Rosemary knew about the molestation and she didn't stop it. And, you know, just let me explain the rest of this tangent before we jump. But uh, instead, Rosemary pleaded with Marcus for him to just wait until Elizabeth was at least 15 years old, which would be the age that she was legally allowed to marry at that time. And that's just, you know, it's incredibly fucked up. It's very hard to wrap your mind around how a parent can knowingly allow someone to molest their child. But there is another perspective to this, and that is you will see that Marcus is extremely abusive and highly manipulative. So Rosemary could have very well been a victim to Marcus as well. I believe that she was. Yeah. So, you know, there's another side to this where maybe Rosemary couldn't do anything to Marcus to stop him. Maybe this whole household was already under his control at this point. And as we progress through the story, you'll see more and more how I think that that could be the truth. Either way, Marcus was molesting the children in the home. And I think that was very much the case. And it's really sad. And I mean, when we get through this and you see just how extreme he was, it makes me believe that there wasn't much she could do in her situation. So I'm not trying to, like, bash any parents. I'm not, you know, I'm just giving you all the perspectives. Right. Everything that I can give you from my take, at least. Feel free to have your own opinion. Now, when Elizabeth did reach the age of 15, she would already be pregnant with Marcus's child. And then Marcus married Elizabeth. And this caused Elizabeth to drop out of school during her eighth grade year. And let me tell you, too, Marcus was around 27, 28 years old at this point, and he impregnated a 15-year-old. Marcus had been telling Elizabeth since she was a child that God had chosen her to be his wife and that she belonged to him. And this is only the beginning of Marcus's extreme religious delusions. I truly believe that at this point in the story, Marcus had already brainwashed Rosemary, Elizabeth, pretty much everyone. Because you have to think about Elizabeth from the time she's seven, eight years old. She has this man grooming her, telling her how you're meant to be my wife. You're meant to be with me. God has ordered you to be with me. So she grows up as an impressionable child hearing this every day. I think that brainwashed her. Of course. I mean, good God. You know, I don't I don't know how I would react in that situation, but that's just 
That's just how I see it. And it saddens the fuck out of me. It's just so sad. So around four months after Marcus and Elizabeth married, Elizabeth would give birth to Marcus's second child, a boy named Dorian. Marcus was living with Elizabeth and Dorian on one level of this house, and Rosemary and the rest of the children were living on the other level. And it continues to get crazier. Okay. Um, by 1980, Elizabeth had three more children by Marcus, and they were Sabrina, Kiani, and Adrian. It was soon after this that Marcus informed Rosemary that he was going to take Elizabeth and their four children and move out. So Marcus gave Rosemary a choice, because remember, Elizabeth is Rosemary's daughter. Yeah. So Marcus tells Rosemary that this is his plan, and she can either let him take the van or a dare. So Marcus tells Rosemary, I'm taking Elizabeth and the children. Either you give me the van or I take a dare with me. You're, you pick. Do you want your child or do you want the car? What the fuck? So Rosemary gave Marcus the van and him and Elizabeth plus their four kids moved out. So, yeah. <laughs> really, uh, really not good. Okay. All right. Within just a few years, Elizabeth would have five more children with Marcus. They were named Gypsy, Marcus Jr., Donovan, and Serafino, and Elizabeth, another Elizabeth. I know it's going to get kind of confusing, but Rosemary has a daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth then had a child with Marcus named Elizabeth, so keep that in mind. Yeah. And Donovan, one of their children, uh, he would sadly die as an infant due to spinal meningitis. He was only seven months old. Damn. It's very sad. In the year 1986, Elizabeth's sister asked her and Marcus if she would take her seven kids as well. She was battling some substance abuse problems, and they agreed. So at this point, there are 15 kids in this house. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody was busy. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth's nieces and nephews had a rough upbringing, they were very excited to go live with their aunt and Marcus. Mm -hmm. You know, they truly thought that maybe life was going to change at this point. They felt as if they were going to be in a happier home. And very, very sadly, this is not the case at all. Almost immediately after Elizabeth's nieces and nephews moved in, Marcus started molesting one of them. And her name was Ruby. And she was also only eight years old at the time. Marcus would tell Ruby... Yeah, I mean, it's enraging. I'm telling you, this one's going to put you through it. Marcus would tell Ruby as he molested her that this was just the way a father showed love and affection for his daughter. Get the fuck out of here. And it didn't stop at Ruby either. Marcus had a pattern where he would start molesting these children when they were around eight or nine years old. And he called the act, quote, loving. And loving consisted of teaching the children about sexuality and divinity via molesting them in their beds at night as they slept repeatedly. Marcus claimed to have done this to instill in the girls how to be good wives for their God-chosen husbands. Fuck you, guy. Not only did Marcus horrifically molest these children, but he also further abused them by keeping them cut off from the outside world. Marcus wouldn't let them go to school. He decided to homeschool them and part of this homeschool curriculum was Marcus teaching the young girls how to perform oral sex before they were nine years old. 
Marcus wouldn't let the children go to doctors or friends' houses. Just nothing. And the homeschooling, if you haven't gathered, that was a fucking joke. Marcus didn't even teach these children how to read and write. So he's depriving them of basic skills and knowledge, thus making it easier for him to control them. These kids were hardly able to even go outside and play. And it is fucking sad. Like, what you're seeing here is the pattern of conditioning that often takes place in a cult. My the blood pressure just, like... Went through the roof? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's several people listening that can agree with you on that. <laughs> like, boy. The leader of a cult will purposefully seclude their followers from the outside, cutting them off from everything and everyone. The isolation plays a key part in how a cult leader maintains an iron grip over the people they're trying to control. And with what we've seen so far, Marcus displays all of the extremes of what you look for in a cult leader. He's a master manipulator. He has a scary ability to persuade others with his words. So Marcus is very slowly but surely over the course of many years turning his family into a cult under the guise of divine and holy teachings. And it's absolutely fucking horrific. And I'm going to just keep saying it every 10 minutes. Might as well remind everybody. It does not get better. It's only going down from here. The whole episode is just awful. <laughs> it's absolutely awful. Hold my hand, bitch. Hold my hand. I'm I'll, hold, okay. I'll hold your hand. Ooh. I got you. <laughs> I need my exit buddy right the fuck now. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Damn. Something else that I want to add, it's kind of random, but not really. With what I just said about the traits and stuff you see in cult leaders right. and some of the methods of how they control, Marcus had an obsession with David Koresh. Oh, God. And for those of you listening, if you don't know him, David Koresh was the cult leader of the Branch Davidians, and he was involved in the Waco siege of 1993. Yep. Marcus was obsessed with David, and I think he maybe even took inspiration from him a little. You know, there's a lot of similarities. So when the Waco siege actually happened, Marcus gathered his family around the TV so they could watch, and Marcus told his family, quote, You see, this is how the world is attacking God's people. This man is just like me. He's making children for the Lord, and that's what we should be doing, making children for the Lord, end quote. I remember being alive and hearing about Waco. I was born in 95, so I was not alive for Waco. <laughs> like, I was very, very young, but I do remember, like, you know, seeing it was on TV. Yeah, it was crazy. It definitely, I wasn't there for it, obviously, but I mean, it was some crazy shit. Marcus tuned into all of this. He was super obsessed. <sighs> it's kind of similar to how Roche Terrio and the Ant Hill kids, how he was obsessed with Jim Jones and Jonestown, right. and he was watching that unfold. Marcus is literally doing the same thing, but with Dave Crush, David Crush, oh excuse me. So back to the story at hand, not only did Marcus, you know, rob the children in the home of their basic needs and their ability to enjoy just being children, but he also repeated what happened to him when he was a child. He started forcing a religious education on all of the children in the home. Marcus made his very own handwritten version of the Bible. It was his version of Christianity, basically. In Marcus's version, he believed that polygamy and incest were vital parts of being an appropriate believer in God. 
Marcus believed that incest was the only true way to, quote, produce the seed of perfection of oneself, end quote. And he forced this on the children as he continued to molest and rape them repeatedly. Another thing that Marcus believed to be a huge part of his version of Christianity, or whatever we want to call it, was vampires. Vampires. Yes, as I said, this plays a fucked up part in it. Marcus believed that the one true way to obtain immortality was through the consumption of human blood. So to break it down for you, Marcus started telling the household that he was the Messiah in the flesh. He believed he was Jesus Christ, but Marcus also believed that Jesus Christ was a vampire. So in turn, Marcus believed that he was the one true vampire king or vampire god, so to say. Somebody watched Bram Stoker's Dracula and got a little too excited. It's pretty bad. He even started referring to himself as Javam Marcus Spire, which is a combination of Marcus, vampire, and Jesus. Marcus forced every member of his family to refer to him as Lord or Master, and Marcus also gave vampire names to all of his children, all of his nieces and nephews, everyone, and he would force the entire house to only address each other by their vampire names. Wow. And just like his parents did to him, Marcus started holding daily Bible studies that would last hours and hours. But, you know, Bible studies from his Bible. Right. He would preach to his family about vampirism and how he was the one true vampire god. He forced everyone to attend these studies, and Marcus made it a point to tell everyone that the reason he was telling them all of this was because he wanted his family to be prepared for the impending rapture. Good Lord. Marcus also told all of his daughters and his nieces that God had chosen them to serve him as his wives. Marcus even compiled together some writings about his life, and he tried to get them published. He named these written works, quote, In the Night of the Light for the Dark, end quote. And ultimately, the publishing company he went to, uh, Vantage Press, they would reject the publication. I can imagine they got <laughs> this in their hands and was like, what the vampire Jesus fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? Like, I could not even imagine just being a publisher and then this just drops in your lap. I would have had a fucking stroke. The only connection that I could ever make from vampires to Christianity was that movie, Dracula 2000. <laughs> That's the only connection. Like, that was the only description that made sense of how that was even possible. Right, right. Well, Marcus, he was just very extreme about it. Like, the whole incest, polygamy, vampires, that was like his big three. That mm. was like, that was the, the trio for him. Put this man in the tomb under the jail. <laughs> <laughs> Give him garlic. <laughs> so also around the time that Marcus started forcing his children to have vampire names and he's, you know, holding these Bible studies. It was around that same time that he started using violent punishments on all of the children in the home. And he did this to keep them in line. Marcus would use electrical cords and baseball bats to brutally beat the children. The youngest child Marcus beat was one-year-old Jonathan. Marcus beat Jonathan until his legs split open and bled. 
Marcus also had a rather large stick that he wrapped in layers of duct tape, and he'd use this item to specifically beat the girls with because he thought using the duct tape would prevent breaking bones and wilting. All the biggest pineapples in hell for this guy. I can say that I completely agree with you. So some of the punishments that Marcus would deal to the children, it went beyond just beating. Some of these punishments would last for months. For example, as punishment, you're going to get beat 21 times a day for 30 days. This is the kind of thing that Marcus did. And the even more fucked up thing about it, to show you just how manipulative and just how calculated he was about doing as much damage as possible, he left it up to the children to come to him to ask for their daily beatings. If he had sentenced one of his children to be beat several times a day for a month, he was like, it's your responsibility to come ask me for that, for me to give it to you. What? Yes. And if a child didn't come and ask Marcus for a beating when they were scheduled to, Marcus would then beat them and extend the period of punishment longer. It's nothing but control by fear. Marcus also forced all of the children to go through garbage cans if they were hungry. They had to eat trash. But Marcus got to eat a ton of fast food and sweets and just everything he wanted to eat while his children ate out of fucking garbage cans and dumpsters. Fuck this guy. And if any of his children came to him complaining that they were hungry, they got beat brutally. And these children lived like this every day for many, many years. And as the children all grew older, Marcus started forcing them to go get jobs at hotels or different restaurants, just anything. Mm -hmm. And Marcus demanded that everyone give him their paychecks. He was basically making everyone work to support him. He was like, you're going to go work and then you're going to give me all your money to support me, my money. And that is just, again, I can't explain how fucked up this is. Marcus was in the very front of the line when it came to who had control in this household. And when the women of the house weren't at work, they were forced by Marcus to care for the younger children. They had to cook, clean, just literally anything that needed to be done, they had to do it. Marcus forced the women in the house to wait on him hand and foot as well, like they were his slaves. They had to wash his hair for him, cook for him, clean for him, bathe him, and Marcus even made them scratch his arms and his armpits when they itched. Marcus also controlled, as I just said, every single dollar, every penny, all of the money in this household. He controlled everything. And the incest and the sexual abuse never stopped either. Marcus was continually molesting and raping and impregnating his nieces and daughters. As three of his nieces hit puberty, Ruby, Rosie, and Sophina, Marcus performed marriage ceremonies where he married them. And he also did this with two of his actual daughters, Elizabeth and Sabrina. As for Marcus's legal wife, Elizabeth... She was so far in at this point that she was just completely supportive of all of this. She didn't question it. She just kind of went with it. So, you know, all of the marriages, all of the vampire Jesus, all of the kids eating out of trash cans, like she did not try to stop it. And I say that loosely because I also still believe that she had no way to stop it. And then just to further explain a wee bit more what I said about him marrying two of his daughters, Elizabeth and Sabrina, mm -hmm. keep in mind in this confusing ass family tree, Rosemary's daughter was Elizabeth. 
Marcus married Elizabeth. Marcus mm. then has a daughter with Elizabeth, names Elizabeth. Elizabeth hits puberty. Marcus marries Elizabeth. That's what's going on. Just wanted to make sure I made that clear because I know this can be extremely confusing. That is troubling. Yeah, it very much is. I mean, this whole thing is troubling. Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? So shortly after these marriage ceremonies, Marcus started again impregnating his newlywed nieces and daughters, telling them that the Lord had instructed him to have as many children as possible to be fruitful and multiply. Marcus also told his nieces and daughters that if anyone ever asked about them being pregnant, that they had to say they were artificially inseminated and not impregnated by him. He didn't want anyone to know, obviously. Marcus also started to grow progressively more and more paranoid as his children all grew older, you know? He started fearing that the males in his household would be attracted to the females in the household. Mm -hmm. So Marcus was scared of the competition, basically, and he wanted his nieces and his daughters all to himself. So he started separating the sexes in his home. He would force the boys to be in one area of the house, and then he would force the girls in the home to be in another part of the house, and Marcus forbade them to communicate with each other in any way. When one of Marcus's nephews named Alme expressed interest in one of the girls in the house, Marcus retaliated by writing a 14-page document titled, quote, The House of Elizabeth, end quote. And in this 14-page document, he stated all of his reasons why he forbade his sons and nephews from interacting with his daughters and nieces. And it's some crazy shit. He had to write laws, basically. And he said in this document, quote, Find your own lives and your own women as God has commanded, end quote. Marcus also told Alme that if he didn't cease in his pursuits, that a family prayer would be held in which Marcus would then, quote, remove the offending entity, end quote. Whoa. It was a threat. So in 1981, Marcus and his family started traveling around in a school bus. It would be later that year that Marcus would receive a $60,000 loan to build his family a new home out in Santa Cruz County. The house that they built was roughly 1,700 square feet, and it was housing more than 12 people, which is crazy as hell to think about. And that's something that I also want to note here, too. Uh, This family moved around California quite a bit. Uh, They never stayed in one place for too long. Mm -hmm. And Marcus did this because he was smart. And he knew that if he stayed in one singular area for too long, that people on the outside would more than likely start getting suspicious. So they were on the move constantly. So there's going to be a lot of jumping around. Okay. So they had this school bus in 1981. Marcus then gets a loan. They build this 1,700 square foot house for 12 plus people. Fucking insanity. Marcus and his family would live in this 1,700-square-foot house for three years, and then in 1984, Marcus moved his family again. And this time, he bought a boat at a local harbor from a man named Kenneth. And then he moved his whole family into this boat. Oh, God. And it didn't take incredibly long for the locals to start getting really concerned by Marcus and his family. During this time... Marcus forced all of the girls in the family to wear long sleeve shirts that were tucked into ankle-length skirts with head wraps. And when the family had any kind of outing outside of the boat, mm-hmm. Marcus would force the girls to walk behind him in a single file line with their heads bowed. And this definitely caught the attention of the surrounding townspeople, which 
I can just imagine seeing something like this is fucking crazy. Because if you've never seen a picture of Marcus Wesson, he is a scary looking motherfucker. Like he is huge. He is tall. He has like dreadlocks that go to his ankles, I believe, like really long dreadlocks. Mm -hmm. So he just looks like someone you don't want to fuck with. Right. And then you see him walking down the street with a single file line of girls following him, all dressed identically with their heads bowed. Like, I could not imagine this shit. I seriously cannot imagine this shit. There were also people that saw Marcus on occasion snatch one of his nieces or daughters by their hair, but no one intervened. In 1989, Marcus was convicted of welfare fraud and perjury due to him using travel checks and money orders to purchase the boat they were staying in. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand necessarily how that works uh, or how this works, but Marcus got in trouble with the welfare company. They were saying that he had evidently been way overpaid by thousands and thousands of dollars in welfare benefits and other things. And, you know, him buying this boat kind of got him in trouble. Mm -hmm. And soon after the incident, the harbor passed a new set of laws that restricted the amount of people that could live on one boat. Because remember, Marcus has like nine plus kids with him. Right. So Marcus took this whole thing with the welfare company coming after him, this harbor passing the little boat law that restricted the number of tenants on a boat. He took this as what, like a personal attack? He took this as basically the welfare company and the harbor conspiring against him. So Marcus tried claiming to the welfare company that the boat was not an asset, but rather a permanent residence in order to avoid, you know, the fraud and perjury charges. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work. In the end, Marcus was sentenced to serve 180 days in jail, along with a ton of fines and five years of probation. And when Marcus got out of jail... He moved his whole family to a campsite in the Santa Cruz Mountains. He had a rent-to-own type situation, mm -hmm. worked out with the guy who owned this campsite, and Marcus and his family would stay at this campsite camping on and off 12 years. Like, can you imagine just camping for 12 years? No. That's a long-ass time, and there's... No running water, no electricity, and most importantly, I think the most unpleasant part of it is Vampire Jesus um, <laughs> and all of the horrible abuse that's coming with it. Like, I just, it's scary. And my heart, you know, I'm not trying to make jokes or make light. We deal with these stories with comedic relief. You have to insert a, a little laugh here and there, but in all seriousness, my heart absolutely goes out to all of these children and Elizabeth. I mean, I just couldn't imagine what their lives were like at the hands of Marcus. I could not imagine the trauma that these poor people had to endure. It just breaks my heart to pieces, man. Like thinking yeah. about any of this shit, the owner of the camp would eventually pass away and the land was passed down to his son. So when that happened, his son ended up selling all of the land mm -hmm. and this forced Marcus and his family to move again. It would be in the year 2000 that Marcus had some of his adult daughters and his nieces go through with buying a small two-story home in Fresno, California. They bought this home from a lawyer named Frank, and just one year later in 2001, Frank filed charges for failure to pay the full amount of the property. Okay. They were missing their mortgage payments and just, you know, everything. I'm guessing that Marcus and his daughters and nieces uh, he had them pay a small percentage down, and then they didn't pay anything after that at all. Yeah. 
Marcus was having his children and wives and nieces and slash this and slash that. He was having everyone do his dirty work for him. He didn't want his name attached to any of this. And it's just, again, fucking sad. When Frank visited the home one day to, like, check up about payment, he noticed that there were two caskets in the first room of the house. Oh, no. One of them was made up like a bed, and the other seemed to be a crib. Caskets. Wooden caskets. And it turns out, Marcus had actually went to a local antique dealer, and he bought ten mahogany caskets. Marcus told the dealer that he was going to repurpose the wood from the caskets to do some repair work. And Marcus forced his daughters and nieces to load up these 10 caskets on their school bus. And then they took them home. The caskets were then arranged in the home and used for beds for the family members. Wild. Wild. Absolutely wild. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that. When I said vampires. Vampires. I was being completely serious. The delusion was way out there. He had his family sleeping in fucking caskets. I'm just blown, man. We went from... Spending 12 years outside, and now we're in a two-story house in caskets. No, it's crazy. And trust, it gets worse. We're still going downhill. Caskets. So around the same time that, you know, Marcus had gotten these caskets and brought them back to his house to be used as beds and cribs and just, you know, what the fuck, he started growing increasingly paranoid more and more over time that the government or law enforcement would interfere with his family. So Marcus devised an entire suicide operation for the family. Marcus told all of his daughters, nieces, sons, nephews, just everybody, that they were soldiers. And that if anyone tried to split up the family, that they would have to act accordingly. Marcus told the women in the family that if shit went down, they'd have to murder their children and then immediately commit suicide. And Marcus was very serious about this. He started holding family meetings once a month where everyone would basically go over this suicide plan. Marcus wanted to make sure that everyone knew what to do if anything happened. I really don't like this guy. And it's incredibly fucked up. Like, he's making his family go over this plan to kill each other and then themselves, basically. I just could not imagine that. Like, imagine being present in your home while you're literally being lectured about how your parents are going to kill you and then kill themselves if something happens. That is so fucked up this to me. This shit is wild. I, I, my brain. Marcus would often ask them as they were discussing the plan, quote, if the time comes, will you be ready? End quote. And you know what else is fucked up about this suicide plan? As a part of it, Marcus made it a point to let everyone know that the only person that would stay alive was himself. I'm done. So that he could then stay behind to tell the world the story of what happened to his wonderful, God-loving family. You're done. Yeah. You're done. My only thoughts on that, fuck you, Marcus Wesson. That's all I have to say, honestly. Moving on. In September of 2003, Marcus and his family moved again. And this time, they moved to a property located at 761 Hammond Avenue in Fresno. And this address is the address that will forever live in infamy. 
because this is the property where Marcus murdered nine members of his family. This house was a one-story structure, and Marcus parked the family's school bus in the driveway. Shortly after the move, two of Marcus's nieces, Rosa and Safina, they were adults, mm-hmm. they had actually escaped and left the family. There were many instances over the years where several of Marcus's niece and daughters tried to escape, but they would always be hunted down by Marcus and brought back home. He Either he would find them and take them by force, or he would find them and somehow, as abusers do, he would convince them to come back. Right. So Rosa and Safina were just two of the ones that actually managed to get away, and they left their children behind. And it's very, very sad. I don't think they did it purposefully. They just being in a situation where you're so desperate to get away that nothing else matters. I mean, I just I don't know. I'm Again, I'm not saying these women are horrible mothers. I'm saying the only horrible motherfucker in this story is Marcus. Yeah. So Rosa and Safina wanted to take their sons with them. And shortly after they left, they tried telling Marcus that they wanted their children back. But Marcus wouldn't allow it. He told Rosa and Safina that they could have their children back once they reached the age of eight or nine years old, which wasn't too incredibly far off because at this time, I think they were maybe six and seven. But yeah, still. but they're at that age where he's got that fascination at that age. Right, oh, right. That's just what Marcus told them. He was like, nope, I refuse. You can get them when they're older. So without any real choice, everyone agreed. But Rosa and Safina were concocting a plan to get their children back behind the scenes. They mm-hmm. were trying to put a plan together to go in there and rescue their fucking kids. And right. I, it just breaks my heart. All of this breaks my heart. So family life continued for Marcus and the remaining children. Neighbors reported that they'd often smell a foul odor coming from the residence. And they'd often see the women walking out on the lawn wearing long-sleeved black dresses. And when neighbors tried to wave or interact with them in any way... None of Marcus's children would respond or talk. They were completely silent and completely ignored the outside, people on the outside. Damn. That is, it's crazy. Like, it is, I've said it once or twice in a case that I've covered, but this is for real as fuck hard to grasp that this actually happened. Like, this is real. In the beginning of 2004, Marcus was issued a citation by the city of Fresno telling him that he had to receive some sort of permit to remain on the property. Uh, The school bus being parked in the driveway was a problem, too, because evidently you can't just park a school bus on residential property. So Marcus got a citation for all this. And if he couldn't meet the requirements, then he'd have to leave. And he was given a deadline. And that deadline was March 12, 2004. And chilling enough that date would be the date that the horrific murders would take place. So on that day, March 12th, 2004, Rosa and Safina had gathered some of their other family members from their mom's side, and they planned to all go to Marcus's house to get their children. Mm -hmm. Basically, their plan was Rosa and Safina had gathered some relatives, some male relatives too from their mother's side, so they were going to go have the men deal with Marcus while they went in and got their children. Smart plan. That was the plan. Rosa and Safina had heard rumors that Marcus was planning on taking the family to Washington State to live because that's where Marcus's parents lived. And they also knew about the suicide pact, so Rosa and Safina were panicking. They knew they had to act quickly. So they gathered everyone up, and they went to the house to confront Marcus. 
And when they got there, a really bad fight broke out between Rosa and Safina and the other teenagers and, you know, children in the Mm -hmm. house. Marcus remained somewhat calm during all of this, um, (laughs) just calm. But his other daughters came out of the house just screaming at Rosa and Safina, calling them whores of Judas and telling them to bow their heads to their one true master, a.k.a. Marcus. So this whole scene is just unfolding. You have people out in the front yard just screaming and yelling. It's not good. This caused one of the neighbors to call the police. And in this call, the neighbor said that there was a, quote, domestic disturbance happening over child custody, end quote. So the Fresno police responded to this call pretty quickly, and they arrived on scene at around 2.30 p.m. When officers arrived and knocked on the door, Marcus answered, and he was extremely calm and cordial with the police. But in the background, Rosa and Safina were still just screaming and fighting, demanding that Marcus give them back their sons. So Marcus finally agreed to let the police take the children. He told the police that he just wanted to give the boys a chance to go pack their things, and then he wanted to say goodbye to them before they left. Mm -hmm. So the police, as well as Rosa and Safina, waited outside, and Marcus then closed the door locking it behind him, and when he locked the door, he quietly started gathering everyone up, and he led them to the back room of the house. Oh, God. Marcus kept everyone in that back room for approximately 80 minutes before he opened the door to surrender to police, and when Marcus did open the door, he was covered in blood. And when police entered the home, they went to the back room and found the dead bodies of nine people. Each person had been shot in the face, specifically through their eyes, and the bodies were piled together on the floor of the room, and they were surrounded by the ten mahogany caskets. They were all very sadly pronounced dead on scene. The victims are as follows. Marcus's two daughters, 25-year-old Sabrina Wesson and 17-year-old Elizabeth Wesson. Marcus's two daughters slash granddaughters, eight-year-old Illabel Wesson and one-year-old Java Wesson, Marcus's daughter-slash-grandniece, seven-year-old Aviv Wesson, Marcus's two sons-slash-grandnephews, seven-year-old Jonathan Wesson and four-year-old Ethan Wesson, Marcus's son-slash-grandson, one-year-old Marshy Wesson, and Marcus's daughter-slash-grandniece, one-year-old Sedona Wesson. Marcus had led Sabrina and the rest of these poor children to the coffin room in the back of the house, where he then carried out shooting them in their faces. He then piled the bodies on the floor and went outside to surrender to law enforcement. And this, it breaks my heart in a way that I can't describe. Uh, These poor people, I mean children, had their lives violently taken away from them at the hands of their own blood. It was decided by Marcus Wesson that death was the ultimate solution. And I cannot put into words just how horrible and heavy this is. These children and Sabrina had their lives ahead of them. They had an entire world to experience. There was the chance that they could have gotten away from Marcus and went on to make their own lives, you know, happier, healthier lives. But they never got that chance. And they had no control or choice in the situation at all. My heart truly breaks for each and every one of the Western children. Their final moments on this earth were being led to a coffin room in the back to where Marcus shot them in their faces. So going back to the crime scene, Marcus was immediately arrested and charged with nine counts of first-degree murder. Later on through the trial, when more information about the things Marcus did to his family came out, 
14 counts of rape and molestation were also tacked on with his murder charges. The night of the murders around 10 o'clock p.m., an extremely heartbreaking and devastating scene happened at 761 Hammond Avenue in Fresno. Officers started rolling the deceased bodies of nine people out of the house on gurneys. Several people from the surrounding neighborhood sobbed as they watched officers carry the bodies of the dead infants in their arms out of the house. The babies were wrapped in white cloth, and it was reported that the officers working this case also cried as they removed the bodies and tin mahogany caskets from the home. This story is a tragedy that left a permanent mark on Fresno, California, if not the entire world. So Marcus Wesson was officially convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of rape and molestation on June 17, 2005. His defense team argued that there was no concrete evidence to prove that Marcus had actually been the one to pull the trigger. Evidently, there was no gunshot residue or anything of that nature to concretely link Marcus to the murders. And the defense argued that since Marcus had trained his family to enact this suicide pact, in the event that the family face any kind of separation or interference from the outside, yeah. they argued that maybe Sabrina had shot all of the children and then shot herself, as Marcus had commanded her to do. Okay, so question. The police were there, but they didn't hear gunshots? Pretty much, yes. It is weird to note with this case, but the Fresno police did claim that they did not hear not one of the nine gunshots that were fired that day. But neighbors that were around the house did claim that they heard gunshots. Suspicious. Yeah, honestly, I don't know what to make of that because this was an 80-minute standoff and police did not hear as nine people were shot in the face. Like, I don't understand how that's even possible, but nonetheless, that's what the Fresno police claimed. In the end... The jury still found Marcus Wesson guilty on all charges, and 10 days later, on June 27, 2005, Marcus Wesson was sentenced to death. Today, Marcus Wesson is 76 years old, and he's still on death row in San Quentin State Prison located in San Quentin, California. And to wrap up this episode, I would like to play you guys some audio from one of the surviving Wesson children. Her name is Evelyn. And just last year, she was interviewed on the Crimecasters Network on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be linking the full video in the show notes if you would like to go listen to the entire thing. But I wanted to play this for you guys. So with what you're about to hear, Evelyn was asked by the interviewer if she still thought about the fact that Marcus was still alive and just sitting on death row. And this is some of what Evelyn had to say. I would like him to know what he did. Because he hasn't realized what he did and the the ramifications of of treating people that way your children the people you're supposed to love he hasn't realized that and he's living in this false reality and i need him i want him to get snatched out of it and be set in front of the mirror and show this is what you did this is the the consequences of what you did this is actually who you are i didn't even want him to actually get the actual death penalty I wanted him to just go to prison and be in general population and live a hellish life of what, how we thought every day. You're going to get beat every day. You're going to get raped. Okay. That's so, to I be honest, like I'm, I'm being honest about it. I did not want him. I actually wrote a letter asking the judge to let him live 
And right. I did that for a reason. I didn't do it because I was on his side. I did it because he didn't deserve to be separated and protected and, and have a little tiny room of himself with a TV and letters and, and um, three meals a day and get to walk around knowing no one's going to ever touch him. Time does heal a lot. And it's just how you deal with things and how you, and just acceptance as well. I had to accept that this, these were the cards that I was dealt with in life. And this is what, what I had to deal with. And either I'm going to just give up and fail and, and just let everything go because of my past, or I'm going to move forward and be a better person and do everything I could do in my power to make, make them proud you know, to basically live for, for the ones who didn't get, get to live. And that concludes my coverage of the evil vampire king of Fresno, Marcus Wesson. <laughs> I know I've been silent for like the ass end of this episode, but... Like, I'm not going to lie. Were you crying at one point? Because I think I saw you like you had that look on your face like you were about to start tearing up. And I was like, if I see you crying, I'm going to start crying. So I had to like look away from you because I was like, if I see the first tear fall from your face, this episode is going to be ruined because I'm going to lose my shit. I teared up a little bit, but then I reeled it back. I reeled it back. But it's just like, just God, man, you know. As you know, um, not a lot of people know this about me, but I am also a domestic violence survivor. Mm -hmm. I don't talk about it. Um, And the reason why I don't talk about it is because, you know, I feel like I've moved on with my life from there. And it's just like you can't help but to see certain patterns in these stories, like Mm -hmm. you said earlier. Yes. And then for those of us that have been abused – you not only see the patterns in like these cult stories, but you see the patterns of abuse when it is presented in front of you. You see and, it everywhere, all yeah, the time. Yeah. All the time. And um uh there are a lot of societal issues. There are a lot of people that are sick. There are a lot of people that um do shit like this. And um I, I think there should be harsher punishments for people who who do shit like this to children and like this Fresno King guy, Wesson, he would have probably never ended up doing shit like this. If this was not prevalent in his own childhood. Right. Which ultimately we'll never know, but it is something you go back and think about. It's like I said way earlier, I truly believe that had he been in a different environment and been nurtured and loved Mm -hmm. and actually had those people in his life. I truly believe that this story would have went in an entirely different direction. Yeah. I really truly do believe that it's it's this this one will make you think a lot. <laughs> yeah. This one will make you think a lot. Ultimately, I didn't know this case at all uh when Casey requested it. I had heard the name a time or two, but I had no idea, so I just looking into this one just it ju- it just fucked me up. I definitely like, heard the name, you know, because obviously, like, I grew up in the nineties, two thousands, right? Like that right. was that was my era, and you know, you see stuff on TV, 
like us millennials, we had just been hit with one thing after another. <laughs> but, but you know, it's like when things like this pop up on TV when you're so young, you really don't think about it. Right. But then later on in life, when you hear that name again, you're like, oh, shit, that's what happened. Yeah. That is terrifying. It's terrifying. It's it's triggering for sure because I was sitting here like just comparing my own notes over here, just like yeah, like it's, this it's is scary. this is some fucking shit. This it is. is. Shit. It genuinely <laughs> is. So we are going to wrap up everything, you guys. Uh, the last notes that I would like to make is a Casey. If you've made it this far, <laughs> you're done. You're done. <laughs> you're done. Thank you very much for sending a case our way. I had never heard of this. You truly put me through the fucking ringer. Absolutely with this one. And the, the next note that I want to make, the last note before we officially close out the episode, my heart genuinely goes out to each and every member of of the Wesson family, not only the members that survived this ordeal, but to the members that did not. My heart absolutely goes out to you. Hopefully, you salvage some part of something out of this. And I hope that that something is very happy. My heart just truly breaks for these people. Right. I literally hope that everything good in this life comes and finds you. Like, everything. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because living, living a life like that, like I said, it ain't living. Like I said, it, it just things that happen in life, they just don't make no damn sense. Especially not things like this, good God. So, on that note, you guys, <sighs> if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, great news, you can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. Don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. So now for my finishing notes on today's case. Casey, thank you for listening to us, but you're done. <laughs> Gage. For covering this shit today, you're done. <laughs> oh, oh, Mr. Marcus Wesson, you're definitely done. David Koresh, you're done. You're done. And until next time, bye. bye. Uh, I'm afraid.